Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Happy Palm Sunday! Today is the beginning of what's known as Passion Week, leading up to the culmination of the Gospel on Resurrection Sunday. Today is the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What a major day that was when the fullness of God's timing came and many of the Jews expected Jesus to become their king and conquer Rome. This is a day that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, but misunderstood, unfortunately, by many of the Jews who expected Jesus to be that conquering Messiah, to usher in his kingdom on earth right then. Today is the only day that Jesus allowed people to worship him. The people's attitude would change a few days later, unfortunately. But for now, it's a glorious day. I'm Debbie Blank, looking forward to sharing with you God's perfect timing and fulfilled prophecies which brought about this day. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. A few weeks ago, were you one of those people who forgot all about daylight savings time and woke up an hour late the next morning? Did you forget, or were you totally unaware that we had sprung forward and lost an hour? If you had to be somewhere in that hour, your hour had already come, and you missed it. Well, we know that God is never late, no matter what. He is the God of perfect timing and perfect order. God has a prophetic time clock as well as his appointed times on his calendar. That's why it's important to understand how these work so that we can be ready for the hour of his second coming. Palm Sunday is an amazing example of this. Did you know that the Jews were given the exact day when the Messiah was to appear? It's an amazing calculation, which we'll share with you today. But when the time came, only a few Jews were ready, and most tragically missed the hour of his visitation. As you say, Jackie, God's timing is always perfect. We often say God's never early and he's never late. He's always on time. However, that may not be our timing. But it certainly is God's perfect timing. And Palm Sunday is an example of God's timing. God first prophesied the need for a Messiah and a Messiah coming in Genesis 3.15, when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent at that time, Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And we're not going to explain all that except to say this was the first time that it was ever mentioned that they needed a Messiah and that he would send one. As we read the Old Testament, the Messiah is woven throughout every book in the Old Testament, leading us up to the time when he would appear. Then in the fullness of God's timing, Jesus came. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us that. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus was unlike any other person, prophet, or teacher throughout all humanity, and he came to save us from our sins, just as God said he would. It's so interesting that his birth and his death, his resurrection, they were all timed perfectly. They were all prophesied. 
Uh, Jesus loves us. He healed so many people at the time that he was here. He spoke powerfully about God. He spoke about the kingdom of God. That's why his timing was so important to be prophesied and why it was so important that he be here exactly at the right time. It was an exciting time. People were so thrilled to have this healing and to be talking about the Messiah. You can imagine they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all those things that we have, but everybody was talking about him. Excitement was in the air. They wanted their king. John six fourteen and 15 reminds us, though, that after Jesus had fed the 5,000, he realized that the people saw the sign which he had performed. And they said then, truly, the prophet who has come into the world is here. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone, because it wasn't yet his time. Later on, Jesus told his brothers that his time had not yet come, because God's timing is always perfect. Many things had to happen before Jesus could come into Jerusalem as the triumphant king. And many things had to happen so that people would recognize him as the king at that time. So he was always aware of the timing. When his mother wanted him to change the water into wine, he was concerned that it wasn't his time yet. Although he acquiesced to her desires, there were other times when it was not his time yet, as you mentioned, his brothers and so forth. There were times when they wanted to make him king, and it was not his time yet. There were times when they tried to get him to do away with him, and it wasn't his time yet. So all of those things had to be synchronized. Whatever he had to do to make sure that the timing was perfect, he fulfilled everything perfectly. Now, did people really realize that he was the Messiah, saving them from their sins? I'm not sure about that. I think they mostly expected him to reign as the king and conquer Rome and establish his kingdom. But that wasn't his timing, not at this point. There was coming a time in the future where our Messiah is going to be seen worthy to receive all power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, according to Revelation 5.12. But that wasn't the time. The time of the triumphant entry was the only day that Jesus allowed them to see him as the king, but it would be short-lived because the people would turn away. So th think of some questions, some similarities between that time and our time. Were people really looking for the Messiah or simply wanting someone to solve their problems? How about us? Are we really looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Excited, anticipate that he's going to be worshipped as king of kings? Or do we just want him to take care of our problems that we have here on earth? When you think about the people at that time, were the religious leaders teaching about the coming of the Messiah from the prophecies? I mean, they clearly knew when King Herod went to his leaders to say, where is the Messiah to be born? He was told they had to look it up, but they knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So the religious leaders should have known that, but there is no indication that they were trying to teach the people what the scriptures said, so the people would be looking for the Messiah. We have to ask ourselves, are our pastors preaching the signs of the times, preaching the fulfillment of the prophecy like we do here on the radio show? Are they preparing us spiritually for the soon return of Jesus Christ? And then we also need to look and ask ourselves, as we think about the people, they accept him as king for one day. But were they manipulated to change their minds? Clearly they were because they called for his death a few days later. Have we turned our lives over to Jesus or, or say that we commit our lives to Jesus or that we're Christians until the cares of the world and the 
personal desires and the feeling good preaching that we hear turns us away from that. So we do things our own ways. You know, when you talk about the religious leaders of today and the religious leaders of back then who should have been preparing the people so that they could recognize they had signs, they had prophecies, we have signs, we have prophecies that we can turn to. And I think about how even with the Feast of God, the appointed times, the Moedim that we've talked about on this show before, where God had on his calendar these feasts, which really were appointed times. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. The Passover is the time when the lambs were selected and sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so Jesus comes in on Nisan 10, which is the day that the lambs were to be selected. And he comes in as the very Lamb of God. And he's crucified on Nisan 14, which is the very day that the lambs are sacrificed. So here is this picture that has been given ahead of time. They've been rehearsing it and rehearsing it for centuries. And now it's happening, and the religious leaders don't get it, and the people don't get it. Those are great examples that you just shared about prophecies about Jesus. Do they specifically mention Jesus? Do they specifically mention that he would come into Jerusalem on Nisan 10? No, they don't. But so many of those feasts and so much of the Old Testament points to Jesus as examples. You look at the life of Joseph. Joseph is a wonderful example. I think I've identified something like 30 different things in Joseph's life that are identical to what we see in Jesus' life to show that he was a precursor for that. You look at Abraham being willing to offer his son, his only son, Isaac, on the altar We know in the New Testament in Hebrews that that was an example of the Messiah. So many of these are anomalies. They point to Jesus in one way or another. But then there's specific scriptures that actually give us the detailed information. And one of those is Daniel 9, 25 and 26. So we're going to look at that here. It reads, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let's stop here and explain this. Daniel prophesied this 600 years before it happened. So this is God giving us one of his exact timings that he gives for Israel. When he says you are to know and discern, he's talking to Daniel. And the previous verse in previous 24 said that this timing dealt with Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city. So we're talking about the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. So going back, the angel Gabriel said, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So we have to ask ourselves, was there ever a historical decree to rebuild Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. It can be found in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter one, we learn about Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king. He heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed and had not been repaired. Now understand, this is about 445 BC. So this is several years after the city was destroyed in 586 BC. Jews had gone back in 539 BC and rebuilt their temple in 515 BC. But now they'd gone several more years, 70 to be exact, and had never done anything to protect the city by rebuilding the walls. So when Nehemiah heard this from someone who reported back to him from being in Jerusalem, his heart was broken. He was weary and he prayed fervently, it tells us in chapter one. Finally, in chapter two, the king asked him, what's going on with you, Nehemiah, basically? And Nehemiah told him, In verse five, he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, 
If your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So that's the request to the king. And you know what the king said? The pagan king, Artaxerxes, by the way, said, sure, you can go back, Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah said, well, can I have the lumber I need to do this? And can I have all the supplies that I need? And would you give me safe and free passageway to go to the city of Jerusalem? And the king said, sure, I'll give you whatever you want. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing that. But it was amazing how God prepared the heart of the king to give Nehemiah just exactly what he needed at that time. So that decree was made according to Nehemiah 2.5. It can be dated to March 14th, 445 BC. Historically, they can date it to that date. You can look at verse 1 in chapter 2 where it says, it came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So we can date this because of the Bible, but also through historical means that the decree went out again on March 14th, 445 BC. Well, it's amazing that we have these dates and there's someone named Sir Robert Anderson who years ago did calculations based on some of these dates you're talking about. And it'll be interesting when we go into that to see how exacting God's timing was and how the things that Sir Robert Anderson had to consider in coming up with the exact date. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Let me continue to give you the timing for this. Because when we go back to Daniel 9.25, it says, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we know that that was March 14th, 445 BC, until Messiah the Prince... Well, the only time Jesus, Messiah, allowed himself to be called king, prince, any of that was the day of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, as we know it. So until that day, we're told there's seven weeks and 62 weeks. I'm not going to explain all of Daniel here, but seven and 62 is 69 weeks or weeks of seven years. So 69 times seven is 483 years. So what he's saying to Daniel is there's 483 years from the time of the decree to restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, which is Palm Sunday. It says, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, meaning Jerusalem's going to be built and there's going to be times of distress in that 480 years. Verse 26 then says, then after the 62 weeks, that's the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. So basically at the end of the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That tells us right there that he's going to be killed. So we know the exact timing of when he's going to come into Jerusalem, and we know he's going to be killed when he comes into Jerusalem. But he is going to come in as the prince or as the king. And you had mentioned Sir Robert Anderson. This was 125 years ago when Sir Robert Anderson put these figures together. He was a biblical scholar. He was head of Scotland Yard. So he wrote this review by determining those 483 years by determining the decree in Nehemiah 2.5. And what he determined then is that there was 477 years. Well, that's not 483, is it? But you have to deduct one year from the BC to AD period. And then you have to figure out the Gregorian calendar, which is different than the Jewish calendar. You also have to figure out the difference from March 14th to April 6th, which is 24 days. And you have to consider leap years of which there were 116 days. So basically he figured out that there were 173,880 days. And when you divide that by the Jewish calendar and the lunar years, it comes to 483 years, brings Jesus into Palm Sunday on April 6th, 32 AD. 
which is interesting because you said he had to take into consideration the different calendars. We've talked about God's calendar and the different calendars that human beings use and daylight savings time, all those different kinds of things. Not that one, but other things that would need to be considered. He did all those calculations and found out it was the exact date of Palm Sunday that year. That just blows my mind. God's timing is perfect. So let's look at Christ's entry on Palm Sunday. According to Matthew 21, starting in verse 21, it says, And when they approached Jerusalem and come to Bethany, to the Mountain of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Again, God's timing is perfect because that's an answer to the prophesying from Zechariah 9.9 that says the exact thing. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it mentions the colt and the donkey here in this passage that was prophesied from the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And one of the comment here is in Zechariah, it says, he, Jesus, is just and endowed with salvation. And he's humble. Well, it tells us they should be looking for a Messiah who is coming to save them. But their idea of salvation was human, not spiritual. So they missed it. During the Passover time, there were halal psalms that they would use, which would be from Psalm 113 to 118, some of the things that they would say traditionally because it was Passover. But in this particular case, it's interesting that these were messianic psalms. And some of the things that they were saying, like Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, all those things were messianic expressions and phrases. And so as he was coming along, they were saying these things, which really meant please save us. They were pleading to be saved. Well, if you look back at the Halal Psalms, people will look back to the Maccabees and how the Maccabees had a revolt and they saved the Israelite people from their enemies at that time. It was political. It was religious, but it was also political. So did they know what they were saying when they were saying Hosanna? Did they know that they were saying save us because they wanted to be saved by the powerful servant, the powerful Messiah? Or did they know that there was a suffering servant that was going to be sacrificed for them soon? Clearly, they did not have a solid understanding of Jesus, or they wouldn't have given him up several days later. Getting back to the point where Jesus came in on a colt, at that point in history, when a king rode a white horse, it was a sign of war. So for Jesus to come into the city on a horse, especially a white horse, he would have been indicating that he was going to start a war against Rome. So this makes sense that he would come in on a colt, and it's a humble act. We know that Jesus was humble. Plus, we've walked the Palm Sunday Road. It is really steep and hard to walk, even though it's paved right now. I really can't imagine walking down that road or being on a horse on that road. Donkeys can walk on many kinds of surfaces, but not necessarily horses. It tells us that they put their garments in the roads and others were cutting branches. And we know their palm trees and other parts of scripture in John 12 and spreading them from the robe. Well, spreading out their garments, both on the donkey, but also on the road and the palm trees was a sign of worship to a king or honor to a king. So they recognized him as coming in as the king. 
Again, I don't know that it was to save them from their sins, but they knew Jesus was special. And because they knew he was special, it says that the multitudes were going before him and after him, and they were crying out, as you said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in John, it even says, even him, the king of Israel. So they did recognize and they were worshiping him. Can you imagine the ruckus that Rome experienced when they saw that happening? Because when you stand on the Temple Mount or in the Roman Praetorium, that overlooks the Kidron Valley, which is where the Mount of Olives comes down to. So they could see everything going on on the Mount of Olives and could hear it also as Jesus was coming in. And the Pharisees knew what they were calling out to him, and they knew what that meant. Now, some of it, I think, had to do with the context of him raising Lazarus from the dead and people knowing about that and coming out to see this man. But for whatever reason, the Pharisees knew what they were saying, and they didn't like it. They didn't like this Hosanna stuff. So they commanded Jesus to stop them, yelled at him and said, stop them. And he said, if they didn't cry out, even the rocks would cry out. So he didn't deny his being the Messiah and he didn't stop them from saying what was actually true. He was appearing to them as the Messiah. And the religious leaders expected the people to be worshiping him with these words. This is a quote from Psalm 1830 that says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The rabbis believed that when the Messiah came, he would be recognized that way. Jesus even said in Matthew 23, when he was weeping over Jerusalem, he said, behold, your house is being left you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is how they had acknowledged him on Palm Sunday. So the people worshiped him. And it tells us that in Matthew 21, 10, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the multitudes are saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So did you notice they called him a prophet, Jesus? Jesus is entering as the king. The people are recognizing him as the king. They're worshiping him. You can't worship a rabbi. You can't worship a religious leader. You can only worship God. So these people clearly thought that he was God. Their rationale is a little different, but they clearly thought he was God and they were worshiping him. The only time God allowed him to be called a king in his time period on this earth. When he returns, he's going to be known as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will usher in the millennial kingdom where he will reign on earth for a thousand years. He will fulfill then at his second coming what the Jews expected at his first. But at his first coming, he needed to die for our sins and rise from the dead, which is what we celebrate this week in Passion Week. Debbie, I can't help but think of John the Baptist and how he pointed to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. When, when he foresaw and pointed Jesus out to other people, to his followers, he said, see the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He perfectly identified Jesus. And yet the religious leaders of the time didn't. They should have known, and they totally missed it. Well, that's not unusual because God says we will always have a remnant. That means there will always be a group of people who recognize God, who serve God, who live for God. And John the Baptist was clearly one of them. But a remnant is usually a small number. If we look at Elijah, the prophet Elijah, he had this amazing opportunity where he killed all 450 of Jezebel's Baal prophets on Mount Carmel, because obviously they didn't believe in God. And God rained down fire from heaven. 
to destroy Elijah's sacrifice to prove that he was God. And we can read all about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a great story. But after that happened, Elijah was depressed and he said, well, what about me? I'm the only one left that serves you, God. And God said, no, I've left a remnant who also serves me. And he mentioned the prophets that he had who were followers of God. When we look to Paul in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, there's a remnant. God was leaving a remnant of the Jews who truly believed in the Messiah, even though many of them didn't. And when he said that in Romans eleven four, he was quoting from Elijah's passage, in this case, 1 Kings 19. And Paul said, but what is the divine response? It is I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So God promises us that there's always going to be people who will honor him, serve him, speak about him, teach about him. Unfortunately, that remnant was not the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, are we part of the remnant today? Are we part of the multitude like the religious leaders or like the multitude who turned away from Jesus, who really truly didn't have an understanding of who Jesus was? I want to be part of the remnant who knows Jesus, who's talking about him. I don't want to be the person who just says, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church once a week and that's my relationship with God. That's not a genuine relationship with God. If we are true followers of Jesus Christ, we desire to be with him all the time. We desire to know him better, to obey him, to have fellowship with him, to worship him. That's in our hearts. That's what we want to do. That's what the remnant did. That's what John the Baptist did. But the multitude didn't because they were fickle. They followed leaders that didn't know God. Instead of checking that out and finding out what the truth was, we see that a lot in our culture today when you consider that only 6% of adult Americans have a biblical worldview. When you consider that pastors on the average only spend two hours a week in scripture, and that is generally when they're preparing for their message. So they're not really developing a strong relationship with God. Therefore, we're having our ears tickled and we're not being taught the truth. That means it's up to us to find the truth, to know the truth. John the Baptist was considered an outcast, but he knew God. I'll be considered an outcast any time to know Jesus Christ. What a great opportunity for people to see Jesus, but they missed it. Because a few days later, they're going to call for his death. How about us? Are we one of the remnant? When we look at Jesus, do we worship him and do we honor him and give him glory? Or are we just looking for him to meet our needs? Are we ready for his second coming, just as they should have been for his first coming? How can we be ready for Christ's return? What should we be doing to be prepared for this glorious appearing? After all, when Jesus came the first time, the multitudes were able to see his miracles firsthand, to hear his teachings, even to be drawn to his humble heart. But we don't have Jesus here. Ah, but we do have his word, the very inspired word of God that speaks to us, teaches us. It helps us to know who he is, to see his love and his miracles to understand how he wants us to live. And not just the word of God, but we are followers of Jesus Christ. So we have his Holy Spirit who leads us in all righteousness, who draws us to God. And on top of all that, we have the prophecies that promise his return, that explain in detail the timing of his return, just like the details that were prophesied of the timing of Christ's first coming. 
we can trust God and his word to know that everything he has said, he will do. That means we have everything we need to be prepared to see Jesus Christ as his glorious appearing. God's timing is always perfect. He will return. And based on the prophecies, it's going to be pretty soon. But will we be faithful followers of Christ looking for, waiting for, and even preparing for his return? Or will we be the Christians in name only who have our eyes on the things of the world? Let's use this special day, this triumphant entry, to focus on Jesus and on his return when he comes truly as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let's make sure we're ready for that return because according to prophecies, he's coming soon. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.